You know, you know, you know what else? What? What? No, what? What? Okay. Well, I was going to say I was watching a TikTok because uh-huh. I accidentally on purpose downloaded TikTok. And uh, you're spending all your time there. It's a universe. It is yes. a universe. Mm-hmm. But um, I was watching this video where a teacher was like, let me tell you what some of the slang of today is. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's not going to be that different. It is wildly different. When something is cool, mm-hmm. you know what kids say? What do they say? They go, yo, that's bussin' bussin'. Okay, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure you watched a TikTok of one child no. who has who has tricked you. No, okay. You have been tricked. That's not what they say. That's just they you've been do. tricked by TikTok. Okay? I, the algorithm has won and okay. Lubao has lost. All right. We'll see about that. <laughs> we'll see about that. Hello, and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I'm joined by Sylvie Lubau, producer extraordinaire. And Sylvie, we have a great show today, don't we? Sure do. We have Sarita Alami, the director of programming at MailChimp Presents. This is MailChimp's entertainment division. You may not know they have an entertainment division. They make short films, they make podcasts, documentaries, all sorts of stuff, all kind of getting the entrepreneurial spirit out into the world. So very excited to sit down with her. She is quite a person. Yeah, I think she can think macro, micro, and everything in between. What was that middle? Middle? She can think middle too. <laughs> yeah. What's the fancy word for middle? <laughs> yeah, macro, micro, and macro, macro, macro. Okay. I don't know where we're gonna go with that. We're macro. Mm. Hmm? So I feel like we're already talking too loud. They're just coming in hot today. We're, we're coming in hot with new words. See you know why that. I think we're both so excited? Tell me. Got that vaccine. Got that Got vax. that shot. Got that vax. Got that dose. <laughs> 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 I honestly feel like once I got the shot, I was like, <sighs> like the deepest breath I've taken in such a long time. Yeah. I mean, I saw you, what, right after and you were just chugging water. And eating oh. what I thought was a pop tart, and then you like scoffed at me. How me? <laughs> me? Oh, pop tart? No, I, I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't. Uh, well, yeah. The advice I've heard is that you want to be well hydrated, and that will help mitigate side effects if you were to have any side effects. Um, but yeah, I just—I mean, like I, as you know, Sylvie, I have spent an enormous amount of time researching. COVID, following all these epidemiologists, like all this stuff. And this vaccine is so crazy because if you get dosed properly, your chance of hospitalization goes to like zero. Chance of death goes to zero. It is unbelievable. It's like, I'm just so blown away by the science. By science. Science. It's so crazy to me that we could be at this place after a year. Like it's I mean, it, there's still a long way to go. We got to get everyone to get comfortable with it. We got to get people to take this thing. We got to stay on top of variants, like blah, blah, blah. But it, it's like, finally, there is like a scientific light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. You're blown away by science. I'm blown away by original content. Oh, a transition. A, a transition to the interview. Yes. yes. See, I might have gone from the original program you were watching on TikTok that was mostly just tricking you mm-hmm. into original programming that inspires you to care for a brand. That's probably what I would have done. That was your transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could, you know, to each their own, to each, to their, each own. their own. Well, should we, should we go to it then? Should we go to the interview? Yeah. Let's, okay. let's check in with Sarita. Cool. Cool. 
Well, Sarita, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to have you here. Um, as you know, we at Wistia were long-term fans of MailChimp, and we actually had Mark DeCristina on a show we did a few years ago. And I know MailChimp is based in Atlanta. I've heard, I've heard through the grapevine that you are quite the Atlanta fan. Is that true? I am. I am. Uh, Atlanta's uh, an amazing place that I happened to land in 2007, and I have grown to be totally enamored with it. I'm in LA right now. I, I came out um, some months back during the pandemic because I loved being able to take Zoom calls from outside during the winter. That's not <laughs> but, bad, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Um, and honestly, like we're in a moment right now where I'm like, what is a place um, when you never <laughs> when you never leave your four walls or your you know your little postage yeah. stamp, which is how it's been for me most of the pandemic. But I I do find myself um, missing Atlanta for sure and very specific uh, aspects of it. It feels not unlike LA in that it's like really messy and complicated and has a ton of you know historical context and um and things that make it i think a hotbed for emerging culture you know since since forever <laughs> or since the beginning and it's been fascinating to watch atlanta you know grow and change as it as the last um decade plus have happened in it as well yeah and so when you think about what you miss like what are you excited to go back to what do you think that we should make sure next time I'm in Atlanta that I don't miss. So many things. Um, forgive me if I wax poetic. I really miss my favorite barbecue place, which I feel like it's controversial the moment I name names. So I will say one of my favorite barbecue <laughs> places, um, <laughs> uh, Fox Brothers, because it was adjacent to where I worked for a long time. So Fox Brothers Barbecue, love you forever, miss you all the time. <laughs> um, and then also, Why is it that barbecue uh, is like that? Know, that you can just miss it. I mean, the, yeah, like, I, there's God. places. I don't think I've had enough Atlanta barbecue, but I've had some really good Austin barbecue. And uh, sometimes I just think to myself, like, oh, Franklin's, I miss you so. Mm. I miss you so. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It feels like so uh, almost viscerally tied to the place it's mm -hmm. from. Maybe, maybe part of it's because it has a cook for so long. I don't know, but that that's so true. Um, and I feel the same about like my taco place too in, in Atlanta. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I feel like it's sacrilege to say when I'm in LA that I miss my, uh, my uh, Atlanta taco place. California, but, Southern um, California is just like, no, we have the best tacos. Totally. I miss the people at those places though. So, yeah. El Taco, I love you. I miss you also. And um, it's just, it's the everyday routines of showing up, you know, um, being a regular, I guess, and uh, and having those really firmly rooted in like where my feet are on the ground, which I cherish the extent to which that's been the case during the pandemic. But it's one of the things I really miss that um, I didn't realize how much I would until it was gone. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, being a regular is is huge. I miss that. Yeah, I miss being a regular. Totally. I, I will admit that I ordered enough takeout from the same restaurant at some point during the pandemic. I can't even say which one, but I really miss being a regular. I was like, I guess I just won't experience that. And then one day I get a text. I have your food. I'm about to deliver it. This is Kim. I'm the owner. And I was like, what? What's going on? 
And I went out there and she's like, I had to see who you are because you order so much. I was just like, I have to meet you, Chris. I was like, wow, I'm like embarrassed and honored. Wow, that's beautiful. I mean, at least like conceptually. I don't know (laughs) (laughs) if if you were, you know, caught off guard. But the idea that she was compelled to do that is really lovely. Kind of a weird experience. And I'm proud of it, obviously. Well, look. We could talk about non-dairy cheese and being a regular at a restaurant for a long time, but we're not, we're not going to. We're going to, go back, we're going to go back to MailChimp. So MailChimp obviously started as an email platform, turned into an email marketing platform, and evolved. You know, their, their branding and the marketing, like, it, it evolved so much over time and really trended more and more towards like, entertaining things until the point that MailChimp really like, invested in this and said, hey, we're going to take this kind of thing you've seen our brand ethos, and we're going to make MailChimp Presents. Can you tell us what is MailChimp Presents? What kind of content do you make? What is, what's going on over there? Yeah, for sure. So I think one of the things I really admired about MailChimp, actually, um, long before I worked there, was that it's always tried to do what it does in an entertaining way, um, in a category, you know, marketing software that isn't always inherently entertaining or even mostly. Um, And so uh, the sense of personality and uh, sort of, we call it the wink, the the recognizing that like, hey, there's a human on either side of this transaction and that human may be, you know, overwhelmed or bored or in the mood for something that feels a little different. And so I think that that sort of ethos has um, evolved as the company has evolved and grown. And um, I think maybe not in a, a way that's too dissimilar to, to Wistia as, you know, as you get bigger and as your focus shifts and maybe expands, like how, how do your content offerings do the same thing um, in a way that feels, you know, genuine and useful and helpful. And so um, MailChimp Presents was really born out of a, a desire to enrich the way we were doing um, brand marketing for one, and then also enrich how, how we could express being a brand in the world and what it meant to uh, participate um, you know, in, our, in our customers' lives for sure, but also in the corporate landscape and our you know, corporate social responsibility from a cultural sense as well. And I think that figuring out, like, essentially, how can we use content as a conduit for an emotional relationship um, with our audience, you know, in a, in a way that feels both helpful and right for our brand. And MailChimp is, you know, a brand that's firmly rooted in empowering underdog entrepreneurs and people who are growing. And we built a, uh, we built a, a whole studio around it. And we we sort of formally launched Milton Presents a little under two years ago. And that's part podcast network, part cultural engine. Um, and then we have, you know, over a hundred short films and about a dozen video series and various, we call them activations because um, it's really just different ways for us to experiment with like how to build um, that relationship and how to be in people's lives in a way that feels um you know, useful and authentic for us. So I love MailChimp Presents. I love the investment in, and the fact that it can do so many different things at once, right? That's, I'm a big believer that like making content that's meaningful can help build your brand. But one of the questions I always get, I'd love to hear how you think about this is, how do you decide which audience to focus on? How do you decide which conversations to enter? Because even the list you gave, there's like, there's a lot 
there. And, you know, the 100 short films, you guys have done so much stuff during the pandemic, supporting artists and all these like different ways. Like when you make the decision, MailChimp Presents wants to invest and make this type of content. How does it, how does that decision work? It's such a good question. And honestly, it's one of those questions where like, I have my neat and tidy, you know, um, soundbite answer to it. And the reality well, let's go is messy. Let's so go much messy more complicated. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I, I love gray area. Um, <laughs> That's life. So, it's all gray. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and one of the things about, you know, doing any kind of work really is that the reality complicates, you know, the assumptions that we have going into it. And so when it was a matter of figuring out what conversations to enter and, you know, where we should use our voice, where we shouldn't, uh, how we balance focus and a need to reach out to certain audiences about certain things uh, with a desire to, you know, adapt to practical circumstances like, oh, I don't know, a pandemic. It becomes a really complicated and, and sort of constantly shifting recipe. For Mailchimp, we have a you know a broad imperative to empower underdogs and entrepreneurs, and the reality of that is like these are people all over the world um, using Mailchimp for radically different things, and you know we we try to keep as close as we can, and certainly have whole <laughs> departments dedicated to it, but. They're not monolithic and it becomes really complicated to try and predict what they want or we what we think they need, um, you know, whoever they is. So what we find to be really helpful is to distill like the emotional function that we want our brand to play in their lives, right? We want MailChimp, we think of MailChimp as a translator. And if there is a way that we can sort of democratize information or make it more broadly accessible, then, you know, we seize the opportunity to do that. Um, if there's a way that we can make our customers feel less alone about the things we know worry them most in terms of growing and building their businesses, great, we, we, we do that too. And then beyond that, um, you know, we choose themes that we want to engage in. Um, Themes like the environment or I think purpose-driven and conscious capitalism, so to speak, you know, insert buzzword here, um, I think it's broadly a category where there's no shortage of content coming out. But like, how do we highlight people who we feel are exemplifying, you know, our sort of ideal um, values as a company, which is like growing and, you know, shifting and evolving your audience while figuring out how to stay yourself and so, anyway, broadly speaking, uh, we we try to we try to fill those buckets, but then sometimes projects cross our desk where we're like, we know people will love this. We know that this is the right moment for this, and if we can be timely and and helpful. Um, and this is one of those areas where the pandemic sort of exploded everything in a way that was actually, I think, really beneficial um, and sort of paradigm shifting. Was then like, then let's do that. If if we can immediately be helpful in an interesting yeah. way, okay, sometimes it's as simple as that. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because kind of uh, you said this, but to, like, I think it's really important to hit that it's very clear that with MailChimp Presents, everyone has decided, okay, our brand, if we can get people to feel a certain way, empowered, not alone, optimistic, all these things, that will be good for the brand to help people feel that way, ultimately that would make um, those connections with customers stronger and MailChimp will do better, right? Like that's like the fundamental assumption, which in and of itself, I think like, I feel like I talk to companies that either get that or don't, right? Like they get brand and they're willing to invest 
and how people feel. Like, I love the, the idea of the wink, but like, yeah, there's a human being here. Cause obviously we're all, we're all humans at different companies. And like, we're not just like sit, we're not robots sitting there, you know, just doing business. Like it's complicated, but then I, and I think that's like, if you're listening and you're trying to figure out how to decide if you should do this or not, I feel like the, the point you just made and that macro level point is like just so important that brand does matter. And that like brand is about getting your values out there. So people understand what they are and strengthen the connection. But I want to dig in on how you decide when something comes up, like the pandemic happens, things change. I think so many people struggle to make those moves when they happen. Like, how do you, how do you actually do that? What does that, what does that feel like? Or can you, can you give advice to, to folks who are, who are listening, who are trying to figure out like, how do you, how do you be more opportunistic while also staying consistent with, you know, whatever it is you're doing, if you're building your brand or talking to customers or whatever it is? Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, you're so right that the, it's really hard to do that um, for a million different reasons. Uh, I think the one I, I encounter probably most often as of late is like grappling with institutional size and complexity and yes. um, how fast it's even possible to move or you know what might be compromised in the process. And even when, you know, when it's very easy and, and, when things feel nimble organizationally or, you know, with somebody who is just um, a person trying to participate more meaningfully as a marketer or as a business owner or whatever, I think like looking for listening and looking at what people are already asking for um, is something that is really hard, I think, and hard hard for marketers, um, especially sometimes. And, and then think about, um, what can, is that something I, I might be able to, um, either meaningfully participate in or, um, or amplify in a way that feels, um, often like very efficient as well as authentic. It's a thing we did when at the very beginning of the pandemic in 2020, we worked with South by Southwest to license the, um, short films and work with those filmmakers who weren't able to show at the festival because it had been canceled and put the films on MailChimp Presents and make them available for for free for folks. And that was a thing that like, I was on Twitter and people were saying, hey, can people give a signal boost to filmmakers who lost their opportunity at the festival? And there were people like Ava DuVernay and Jay Duplass and others who were, you know, stepping in to do that on their Twitter accounts. And I thought like, oh, people are asking for that. If we could do that, you know, and actually be um, useful in that way, then we can do that very quickly. Um, and so that's just one example. But I think that not trying to reinvent the wheel and really like make a splash for its own sake and really, you know, find who your people are, who you're trying to reach and then listen very closely to what they're already saying and, you know, where they're hanging out and what conversations they're participating in, because those people tend to be a lot more astute in a way because they're more closely aligned um, with their audience than I am. Yeah. And I, uh, there's a, a lot in there. I mean, it's also, I mean, you were listening for this, right? Inherently, like on Twitter, you saw this coming up and you said, oh, we can solve that. Do you think that that's like something you've always been tapped into? Is that how you use Twitter normally? Like what advice would you give to somebody so that they can like stay closer to what it is their their customers want and, and need? Well, I mean, 
again, the unvarnished version of this is that like, I'm not great at Twitter. <laughs> I um, <laughs> have uh, become really exhausted by social media over the course of the pandemic to a certain extent. And in particular was glued to Twitter when I was, when South by was canceled because I was quarantined in my hotel room because I thought mm. I'd been exposed to COVID. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> So uh, sometimes, uh, unfortunate <laughs> circumstances, um, you know, can can breed opportunity. But um, <laughs> I guess I, all that's to say, like, I guess nobody's perfect. But like, sometimes, you know, a super intentional social listening strategy and you know, ability to stay tapped in is not, oh, it's not always possible or perfect. You know, it's not an exact science, and um, and that's okay. But like. I guess logging in and sort of being being tuned in in a way that is very focused on who I care about, my audience, like the people I follow, and then kind of trying to tune out the noise because it can be exhausting is the strategy that I find to be, you know, successful when we're thinking about Milton Presents or when I'm just trying to like consume culture, you know, more broadly. But I think that has been both particularly difficult and particularly important at least in this past year. And you're listening hard and then figuring out, you know, how how to apply that by making original content or buying rights to something or helping be distribution or you're helping to build brand. But you, you've built up these this tool set, right? You kind of can figure out, should we make it ourselves? Should we buy the thing? What should we do? How What advice would you give to, to somebody who's starting on this? If they're trying to start with original programming, how would you advise them to do that? Yeah, you know, this is something that we've been through a lot of trial and error on. And that again, I don't think there's, it, it's not an exact science, but the the biggest key in my experience and what I would give as it, well, I guess what I do give as advice is like partner alignment and figuring out like, okay, well, what purpose do I want to serve as, you know, MailChimp presents whatever it is, you know, the, the content investment engine. And then um, what are the pieces I don't know how to do or don't know how to do yet? And um, who are the people who are doing it well? And can we align ourselves in a way that's mutually beneficial? And that has, has ended up being really nimble for us. And like, for example, um, we have Oscilloscope Laboratories, an independent film distribution company that we work with super, super closely because they can make things quickly and we know we're aligned enough that like uh, we can sort of use them as an extension of ourselves. And so I think finding different partners to provide services that, you know, that we can't or not, are not equipped to provide in-house and having those people on speed dial um, and investing time in those relationships. You know, it's so easy to say, oh, find great partners, but the reality is so much harder. But I think like really protecting them when when those relationships click because that trust and that ability to like know that if, if we want to make, you know, a podcast or a video series or something that requires way more time and resources than we have in, you know, our small but mighty Melton Presents team, then we know exactly who does that particularly well. And we can trust them with the project without having to breathe down their neck. And is that what it felt like when you found your rhythm at Melton Presents? Is it kind of like, oh, we know who should work on this type of thing or that type of thing, or even what it feels like when it's working? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And it does really feel like a rhythm. Um, and I think that part of it for us was working with close partners to um, develop a solid understanding of like, you know, what our goals were, what we were doing, and uh, where we might need help or be particularly useful. Then we have like a constant cadence of people saying, what about this? What about this? Can we help you with this? That isn't just, you know, a cold pitch or a relationship that it's hard to start from scratch. And so when someone, even when they do want to, you know, meet a need and we feel like there's alignment, it can be so frustrating sometimes when it's like, okay, well then we have the meetings and then we initiate a contract process and we get to know each other and, and whatever. And so I think figuring out the balance between like, how are we always investing in new relationships and, you know, understanding who we should be working with while, uh, having that rhythm of, you know, projects that um, feel right for us with partners who feel right for us as partners um, has been really important and has allowed us to really get less in the weeds in terms of the um, production operations aspects of it and really zoom out and, and think about, you know, from a strategic perspective, from an audience perspective, um, from a creative excellence and craft perspective, is this doing what we want it to? And how can we be better? And how can we change things, you know, and figure out how to break the machine and do it a little differently next time. So it seems like it's like searching for trust, right? That That's kind of what I heard is like, you find the partner or people that you can work with and you there's enough trust, then you don't have to be in the weeds and suddenly they can do their thing and you can do your thing and you end up with this like harmonious relation. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's really well put. And I think searching for that trust and guarding it and cultivating it, you know, th those are hard things to do and they're sort of the product of a million different, you know, interactions and sort of uh, micro engagements, but it, it's everything. I mean, it's the difference between sometimes loving what you're working on or not, or feeling like what you're doing is effective or not. Um, and so it feels like when that is gone, it just makes everything feel quite a bit harder and like, you know, going uphill instead of downhill, I suppose. It's just, I think that's, if, you know, for folks who are listening and thinking about making original content um, of any kind, if you're doing it yourselves or you're working with a partner or whatever, I do think what we just talked about is so helpful <laughs> because it's it's like giving someone a guide of what to look for. And I mean, when you're taking your risks, like you can't take such a huge risk that you have to be like, you know, meddling into everything to guarantee that it works, but also too small of a thing where you don't care about it. And it's like somewhere in the middle where each project matters and you actually have trust of the people that can deliver it and that they could do something that you can't do is just so important. I feel like that's like, yeah, what I hear you saying that that's what I'm thinking about is all the things we've done. It's like, well, you know, if we had to do all of this ourselves or had to be in the middle of it, we would get no benefit from working with the expert who's going to bring something to it that we can't, right? Yeah, totally. And that expertise <laughs> is really key because finding people who know how to do what I want to do better than I do you know, should be the starting dream. point. For That's the dream. That's what we're for looking any, for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when reality can support that, um, you know, not leaning on those people um, is crazy. You know, learning when to let go of the reins and when to not is, I mean, I've learned that the hard way for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I'm constantly learning. But um, a thing that I didn't fully appreciate until 
Um, you know, I'm on the other side of a couple years of running the, the content engine that is Belgium Presents is like being involved at the front end um, and in the development process and being sometimes annoyingly close to the process uh, before it hits production feels like the the right place to invest our energy um, and the right place to like set up our collaborators for success and really think together about, you know, what this can be, what it should be. And I find that like, that's often way more helpful than, you know, the feeling that you have like a, a client for lack of a better term, you know, breathing down your neck versus like a partner in the process at the beginning who's going to empower you to do your best work and help amplify it when it's done, which is, I think, for us, the sort of best case scenario. And then there's a big part in the middle, though, where it's like you sort of hold your breath and let them do what you hired them to do. And figuring out where the balance there is of, you know, making sure, of course, like our investments are being executed wisely and we're able to report back on those investments in a way that, you know, is satisfying of business goals is like, that's hard to balance sometimes, but it feels essential to maintaining that trust. Yeah. And and speaking of trust, I feel like we're talking a lot about the trust with production and bringing a vision to life or telling a story. I also want to talk about like trust with the audience. And in particular, you know, I think this last year has obviously been insane, right? Like this is, we're living in a global pandemic and it's changed everything. It's changed our culture. But then also last year we saw, you know, police violence against young black men predominantly and the Black Lives Matter movement started to really have a much stronger voice and people really started to wake up to like these murders that had occurred. And I've been thinking about this because like, these are big topics shaping our culture, but how should we think about when you have the right to enter the conversations around these different things? What does your audience trust you to talk about? Because I think this is something that is, you know, you talked about making the decisions pretty quickly in terms of like, all right, we're going to support these artists. And I know MailChimp has been very outspoken on, on all of these topics. But how do you decide when it is a topic that you can enter versus not? And and how do you think companies should think about this? Yeah, what a what a what a year for that question and the sort of answers to it to um, to evolve. It's been uh, it's been a I think a constant grappling um, with that this year. And I feel like for anybody who's not grappling with some version of that, you know, at work, then. Maybe they're not paying attention. <laughs> yeah, but uh, definitely. Not. I think that you know, figuring out what conversations to be a part of, and part of this question of like, should we be political? Should we be apolitical? And all the complications and um, number of stakeholders that go into answering those questions can. A, a, a nice way to sort of supplement or sidestep them um, at times is by thinking about like, okay, what are we already doing where we could expand or contract the size or, you know, rearrange the size of the stage um, that we're giving people and just use our channels to elevate the right voices. And, um, you know, it's, that's a thing that is a, double-edged sword too. Like um, we had Hillary Clinton as a, a guest on on the first season of, of Going Through It, which is our most successful podcast. It's a series about whether to quit or whether to keep going and uh, really about that 
pivotal moment um, when you're trying to figure out like, should I stay at my day job? Should I, you know, throw in the towel? Uh, she almost dropped out of college. And so there was nothing political about her episode. <laughs> and it was a really interesting, vulnerable look at a college yeah. age. And I think to a lot of people, frankly, like um, more authentic version uh, of Hillary Clinton. Uh, but there were folks on Twitter who were not happy about that and who were saying, you know, I'm going to cancel my MailChimp account. Um, just for having her on the show. Totally. And like, there are always going to be those people, you know? And I think that like, uh, figuring out who we want to hand the microphone to is something that I try to be really intentional about. And I know that we do as an organization, but like, are there times where, where I've questioned like, okay, did that person really need a bigger stage? I mean, I know that they were a big talent draw and that's caused us to not air things because we think like, oh, actually we don't want to give that person more of a platform right now. It's just not worth it. And it's not worth the clicks. And so when it comes to things like our, you know, racial reckoning um, that we've been going through in this past year and any issues related to equity and justice and, you know, coups and attempts to take down the state and uh, the, the laundry list of, you know, political activities this past year. It's companies are political and are going to be political whether they want to be or not. You know, if I'm if I'm silent, that's a political act. If I'm, you know, a if I have a megaphone for a giant company um, and if I say something, um, you know, that also uh, is its own act. But, you know, the, this thought that like, well, we can sidestep the conversation if we just really feel like this is, you know, not for us right now. It's just not realistic anymore. And um, and, you know, people will call you out on your silence and people putting companies on blast on Twitter because they hadn't said anything about, you know, whether it was George Floyd's murder or like platforms that were, you know, giving COVID deniers or white supremacist voices, like it's not okay to not say anything. Um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful uh, to have, I think only ever worked places um, where, saying something is has been a core part of the dna but like how do you say something without making it all about you and sort of like go away brand like we don't want you weighing yeah. in on this and i think pride being the sort of quintessential you know version of that sort of happening in a way that i think can be detrimental it's a delicate balance too and um it's i think about like the genuine passing of the mic versus like oh how can we fold this into um you know this quarter's earned media strategy or whatever it, priorities might be driving some engagements with what are, you know, incredibly charged and highly personal topics. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, first of all, thank you. I feel like you just broke down something that I'm sure for a lot of folks and myself included, there's, there's a lot in there that is empowering, but also just like, kind of like wake up to like where we are. And, and the thing I I think like was the, the key piece is like silence is a political act. And so you're political, whether or not you want to be. Yeah, so, yeah. so I, I think like grappling with that is, is what we all have to do and say like, all right, so I'm political no matter what. It's obviously extremely complicated. To me, it feels like an interesting moment because it seems like more of the responsibility is shifting to companies. Yeah, um, totally. Right. And that, that is what's surprising. Like if, if we were to go back 20 years and be like, 
you won't believe it, but all these technology companies and the the companies that sell you stuff that gets delivered to your house, you're going to think you do it through magazines. In the future, it's all online. It's all direct to consumer. And they're all going to, you're going to get some political information from them and opinions. Uh, but that is, that is what's happened, right? It is something that has really changed that we all have to think about and think about, I think, in advance of the of the crisis. Totally. And I think you're exactly right that like coming out of it from crisis management mode is never going to be the the solution. It's going to, you know, be reactive. And I think uh, thinking about things early enough and intentionally enough to be able to um, really meaningfully engage with what like, well, what feels like the specific issues and type of stance that feels right for my brand or my, you know, institution or organization? And how can we be proactive about who the right voices are um, in those areas? And how can we think about like how comfortable we are about publicly stating our values and our stance on what's happening, you know, when God knows what's going to happen next happens, you know, whether it relates to gun violence or um, public health or whatever else, because often I think the most neatly uh, laid plans for, you know, areas of focus, um, well, then reality happens. And then everybody is scrambling to stay true to themselves and and figure out how to um, reach their goals while grappling with like, you know, an entirely new, in some cases, reality. Yeah. So Sarita, as you know, this show is called Talking Too Loud because when I get excited, which is all the time, I cannot help myself when the volume of my voice increases and I start talking too loud. And I'm wondering, you know, I love to ask every guest, but like, what has you talking too loud or whatever your version of that is? Like, what's got you super excited these days? Yeah. Well, for me, I think it would be like talking too fast for sure. (laughs) And I feel like sometimes once I get excited about something, it's about, it's like trying to drink through a fire hose for my, my poor friends and family or, you know, members of my tiny pod, um, as it's been (laughs) the past year. Uh, I think what has me talking too fast is puppets and uh, more broadly nostalgia. Yeah. I can't stop thinking about puppets and I'm obsessed with puppet animation and all things related to like stop motion puppetry lately. Is that oddly specific? Do people usually I know that? Like, no, it's, it's always different. That, no, yeah, I love marketing. No, no, no. No, that was, that was delightful. That was such a delightful surprise. Is there something that brought that on? Is there like a particular movie or something that got you going on like stop motion puppetry? Yeah, uh, as far as MailChimp goes, um, we released a series top of 2021 um, called All in a Day's Work. And um, it was like tiny vignettes with no dialogue done uh, predominantly in stop motion puppetry for this specific season. Uh, and it was absolutely arresting. I mean, the I think the tactile nature of it um, grew new meaning when nobody could leave their homes, um, you know, for, for a while. And this thing that felt like you were touching it, even though it was on a screen, um, mm. because it was so um, fuzzy. And then also reminded, I think that for a whole generation of us, at least, it reminded us of Wallace and Gromit and Christmas specials and, um, you know, all of these experiences of animation and, you know, holidays and whatever else that we'd had as kids. And so um, I think like there is uh, anything that you can touch uh, or that feels like you can touch it and feels really tactile seems to be having um, uh, a moment when it comes to like art direction right now. And Mm. I think um, anything that like 
I think brings people closer to themselves and maybe prior versions of themselves um, that were, you know, not engaging with content when they were kids. They were watching cartoons. They were playing, <laughs> and and those those mediums that like are evocative of that, like puppets, are just like it's for me using those as a channel for all kinds of things. It is so delightful. So thinking about puppets, that's what I have to do in order to, you know, laugh at work every day and figure out what we can explore that is going to feel really playful, hopefully to me, but also to, you know, audiences. I love that. I love that. I just watched um, Fantastic Mr. Fox for the first time. Oh, God. For the Mm. first time? For the first time. I somehow missed it when it came out. And then... We were looking for a movie to watch uh, with my kids and with uh, my niece and nephew. And I was trying to find something that none of us had seen. And I got fantastic. I'm like, this, I think they can handle this. And we started to put it on. They're like, what is this? What is this? I don't know. This isn't animated. They're like, so anti it. And then like two minutes in, they're like, then their eyes went wide (laughs) and everybody just loved it. And it was so fun. It was so fun to see how, I mean, just how much life you can have in a puppet. I didn't expect I'd ever talk about this or mention it to anyone, but I guess, you know, when you're talking so fast about puppets, we go to puppets. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Well, thank you for sharing that. Oh God, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. I'm I'm really glad that you were able to have that experience. It was great. Sarita, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, Hope you have a great day. And uh, this was talking too fast. Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, this was like the nicest coffee break Zoom ever. So um, thank you for uh, making it so pleasant. And I hope you have a great rest of your days. Thanks. Thanks. Bye, y'all. Bye. Covered a lot of ground there. I think it is interesting because like MailChimp's ahead of the pack, right? Like they've got MailChimp Presents, they've got a studio, they're thinking about entertaining content, but they're also thinking about like what conversations do they have the right to enter? You know, even the stuff of like you're political, whether or not you want to be. And it's interesting to talk to Sarita and because I kept thinking about like the folks that I've, I've had conversations this week with other entrepreneurs who are confu- honestly like they're, they're excited and afraid and you know, optimistic and scared all at once about like how do they put more of their voice out into the world? How do they do it consistently? How do they talk about things that aren't their product? How do they talk to th- about things that aren't necessarily their market but affect their market? And then how do they talk about the world? So it's just like I think very cool to hear that framework and also thinking about how to start having those conversations and then change the stage. I love that, right? Like change the balance of like what topics are on the stage. Absolutely. And I think she said, like, straight up, this is hard. Like, it's supposed to be hard. It should be hard. Uh, The only thing that you cannot do right now is just be complacent, right? Like, I felt like that's what came through. It's like, it's not enough anymore to just, like, shrug and be like, I don't know. Like, it's hard. You got to keep working at it. You got to, I don't know. I it, It felt like, What am I trying to say, Savage? You know what I'm trying to say. It felt like there was a lot of humility that was coming through in what she was saying, like kind of accept what you don't know, but then like it doesn't stop there. That like you have a responsibility to then keep listening to your customers, to keep like listening to the folks that you admire, to then, like you said, change the stage. 
Yeah, and, and I think start trying to talk about this stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, we just launched a new podcast at Wistia, Better Workplace, right? Right. And we're trying to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. And, you know, we care a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion at Wistia, but we don't have it all figured out. We're trying to figure it out. And there was mm -hmm. a big conversation like, can we put this podcast out or not? Like, are we the experts on it or not? And we're like, well, we're not the experts, but we're trying hard. Maybe if the premise can be, we're going to share our learnings as we go. Yeah. And at least try to have the conversation, then this is a way for us to put something out in the world that we care about and hopefully will accelerate our learning. But it is scary to put stuff out when you're trying to actively learn in public. A hundred percent. But it also just keeps making me think about it. It's also early, right? Like this shift towards um, companies needing to take stand on things that they never thought that they would have to take a stand on. It's not going away. It's intensifying. Uh, but also, I think it means that the opportunity is to learn right now, right? And so it's a, how do you start to create the space for those conversations? And if you can, hopefully, and you're listening hard enough, um, you can actually iterate and make something meaningful. Absolutely. And, you know, I think like something else that I'm going to take away from the conversation is just when she was talking about South by and she was like, you know, these mm -hmm. filmmakers obviously no longer had a platform. I like that she said signal boosting. I like that it's not like we are helping them tell their story. Like it feels really different to be like, we are elevating versus like helping tell a story. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Totally, yes. And it's, it's almost, if you're thinking, how do I get started with this? Like, you can start by saying, like, are there other people telling stories that we agree with that we should elevate? Okay, yeah. let's try to elevate those and get more eyes on those. And that could be how we can show people that we care about this. And as you get more comfortable, you can move towards, like, putting more of your opinions out there or taking larger stands. Nailed it. Nailed it. Thanks, Sylvia. appreciate you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate Fantastic Mr. Fox and the fact that you watched it for the first time. I appreciate Sarita appreciating puppets. You know, there's a lot to be grateful for today. There sure is. There sure is. All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you like the show, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. That can be Apple Podcasts. That can be Spotify. That can be Overcast. That can be that other one. Um, so wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, you can also email us at ttlpod at wistia.com. Send us some voice memos. We've got some coming in. I think we might, maybe next episode, play a few voice memos. Is that right, Sylvie? I think that might happen. I think next week. It's going to be two weeks. Two wild. Weeks. The quality of these voice memos. Woo! Somebody has a good mic. Somebody has a mic. <laughs> okay. That works. I think we've done it. I think we, we got there in the end. All right. All right. Bye, Sylvie. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Josh Solarski. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.